0: perspective so important Billy you know we have a recency bias everything that happened just recently is the most important thing that ever happened so of course everything that happened since the the founding of the United States or since the beginning of the Trump administration that's shaping the world it's shaping human history really the two million years or so that we have been around before anything was written down did more to shape the way that our lives exist today you and I sitting here today all of that did far more for that than Plymouth Rock or the you know the Constitution. All of our recent achievements happened because of our ancestors not getting eaten while they were, you know, living out on the plains. People make their decisions because their brain is programmed that way. It's very hard to go against that. So in today's world to be an entrepreneur, to be a risk taker, to move up in a company, whatever someone's trying to do, you have to avoid or override a lot of the instincts that kept our ancestors alive. They didn't take risk because they die. We take risks so that we can thrive.
1: Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is Mike Terry, founder and president of Homelink. Mike was one of my very first mentors in the solar industry and I owe much of my early success to his guidance and leadership. As you'll see, Mike thinks about entrepreneurship, leadership and life in a very unique way. He's a natural problem solver and usually comes up with creative solutions that makes the companies he works for more productive and efficient. He is smart, funny and incredibly direct. Mike is truly one of the most brilliant strategic thinkers I've ever met and I'm so excited to give a glimpse into his mind on this episode. On the show, we learn what lesson he learned while he was a movie theater manager that he's been able to apply to all businesses, what two jobs he recommends to anyone, and why he feels we actually have to override how we're hardwired as a species to be more successful as an entrepreneur. We also learn what Mike recommends cutting back on to be more successful how a ride at Disneyland is a great metaphor for how we should manage our lives and what daily activity he does to help him have more insights. We also learned what he means when he says we naturally have a recency bias, why he believes getting fired is actually a good thing, and why it's so important to recognize when we're in a money booth. Mike shares so much knowledge that I've broken this interview into two episodes, and I'll share part two as a special Sales Insights episode later this week. For now, I hope you enjoy part one of this truly unique and interesting conversation with the one and only Mike Terry on this episode of Inside Out. Michael Terry, welcome to
0: Inside Out. William Salibi, thank you for having me, brother.
1: Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this opportunity. As you know, you are somebody that I consider one of the most important mentors that I've had in my sales career. And you and I got to meet each other way back in the first part of 2010. I just started Varengo and you had been there for a few months. And I distinctly remember looking at the leaderboard, and seeing this guy named Mike Terry at the top of the leaderboard. You and Michael Mullen. It was sort of a combination. It was the two Mikes. And as I shared with Michael Mullen, it's like, do I need to change my name to Mike in order to be successful at this company? But immediately out the gate, I knew I needed to talk to you. And you were nice enough to mentor me and give me some tips and really help me Launch my career in solar. So first and foremost, thank you for doing that. And again, thank you for being on the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So this show is all about insights. And one of the things that I know when looking at our lives and reflecting and thinking back at what has helped make us the human beings we are today is we're a product of our experiences. And some of those experiences are these monumental insights that act as pivot points in our life. Curious, as you look back at your own life and you think of your career or you think of things that have happened that have helped you become the person you are, what are some of the moments where either you had this aha moment or a sudden realization or really just an insight that occurred that helped really take your career on, on the trajectory that it's been on?
0: Yeah, I think that they're precipitated by, by major events, starting new jobs, losing jobs. I've been fired a lot. I've been fired from a lot of places. And I think that every time you get fired, it's kind of one of the best things that could ever happen to you. Every time someone gets fired, they they feel horrible about it. They go, oh my God, I lost my job. They don't want me anymore. I, I did something wrong or pissed somebody off or whatever. But I've never really talked to anybody who's successful, who looks back at getting fired and says, oh man, getting fired from that, whatever job it was two years ago or five years ago, that really screwed up my life. Been horrible ever since. Every time you get fired, you find a better job. You end up in a better spot. you meet better people. so I think that getting fired is one of the best ways to to learn and to grow because in today 's world, the people who stay are typically not the best people. The people who are best typically go sometimes they quit, sometimes they get fired. The people who stick around forever are sometimes the people who are just okay with being okay and they 're not really pushing any boundaries so I've really enjoyed getting fired, gained a lot of insights out of that.
1: I love it. I think that's the first time that's been shared on this show. But what has been shared are traumatic events are honestly failure. And, And I'm not saying getting fired is necessarily a failure, but a lot of people would consider it a failure. But to your point, it's a new chapter. It's a new beginning. It gives you the opportunity to meet new people, try new things, and kind of get out of your comfort zone. I think one of the things that you highlighted is those that end up staying really, really long-term, one, that's unusual nowadays. Long ago, it was the norm that people would work at a company 30, 40, 50 years. Those days are far past us now. And people don't stay at companies that long, especially really good people, to your point. Why is that? Why do you think that's the case?
0: I was having a conversation with my dad, I think it was probably 10 years ago. He says, how do you like your new job? I said, "I love it. It's great. It's great. So you think you'll probably retire from there? (laughs) Right. And I think that our dad's generations, if when they found something they loved in their late twenties or, you know, early thirties, and it was great, like, this is where I'm going to stay. And that made a lot of sense at the time. It was the world of pensions and it was the world of, of, of things like that. There were a lot of monetary reasons to stick around. I think that the reason that we move from place to place a lot more than, than people did previously is the availability of information. The opportunities weren't as visible to us before. The internet and connectivity between everyone shows us there's a lot more out there. And then it's just also human nature to have that grass is greener on the other side, not necessarily from a, I work here and I think it's going to be better over there. But when we run an organization, we see the good and the bad in all of our people. And when we look to recruit people from outside, we only see you know, the reputation on LinkedIn or what we've heard about them, the big things they've done. We don't see the little things they've screwed up, the people that they've you know, pissed off or, or whatever. So everyone's looking over each other's fences mm. and seeing the backyard barbecue life. They're not seeing. The good parts. That's right. They're not seeing the fight that happened at 2 a.m. in the kitchen (laughs) over who dropped a jar of jelly on the floor and cracked a tile. It wasn't me, Billy. That was definitely (laughs) one of my kids.
1: So true. Yeah, man. I mean, the internet and the access to information has been a game changer, and not least of which, when you look at social media and you think about kind of the shiny way people present themselves in the perfect light, which we all know is it's the best version of themselves in most cases there is that odd post where people just spill everything and be and become very vulnerable but those are few and far between i think when we think of our own career there's a lot of times there's moments that exist in our career that help catapult us either within our own job or give us opportunity for a new role so you and i have a really funny story i would love for you to tell it when we started at Varengo, we both started as consultants and as i already mentioned you were a top performer i can attribute my success also becoming a top performer to learning from you and, and a few other people that helped me be successful there and as things would turn out we were afforded new opportunities either in management or our, i we both had a, a stint in training you led the marketing function you had multiple sales leader roles i also had multiple sales leader roles and so we had all these moments that that existed but before we get into
0: I know all, where you're going. All of
1: those moments. How did we end up leaving Varango and going to Solar City? Describe that story.
0: Yeah, we were both really enjoying what we were doing, but we are at a company, you know, when we're in that spot where a lot of people find themselves where they say, hey, then a the thing I'm doing seems great, but you're looking around and going, but there, there's a lot of other stuff that's not going great. And this may not be the best sort of ship to be sailing on right now, right? Even if you feel good about what you're doing. So you and I had been there, we were going on seven years or so a long time. And I think that I came to you and I said, Hey, Billy, how about lunch tomorrow? And you said like, Oh, I have to be in seal beach for a meeting with someone. I'm like, Oh, I have to be at a meeting in seal beach in the afternoon. And it turns out we were going to the same place, talking to the same guys about working for the same company. And, uh, I think we both felt a little sort of hesitant about making that move or even talking about it. But as soon as we realized that we were both looking at it. It became all the more appealing, right? That Let that be a, a, a tip to anyone who's trying to recruit people. Like recruiting in groups can be <laughs> a great move. But, you know, we were thinking like-mindedly and we were approached similarly and saw the opportunity in the same way, took advantage of it and got to do a whole other chapter working together, the new company.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that, that you highlighted that it made it easier because I totally feel the same way. Actually, I... Can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, when Mike leaves, I'll probably leave. And I was really loyal, as were you. We were there a really long time, and I have nothing bad to say about my time in Varango. I learned so much, and it was just an incredible opportunity for me to be a part of something special in the early days of, of Solar. And then, obviously, we worked together at Solar City, and that was an incredible experience as well. One of the things I've seen in your career is. You're an impressive guy. Everyone that meets you is instantly, they, they see your ability to think so quickly and have really smart, strategic ideas that others just aren't thinking about. I don't know if it comes naturally or if it's just a gift that you have. Curious, when you when you think back to your own career and you look at the moments that existed where you either got a promotion or you got more responsibility? What, what was it that led up to those moments? Why is it that you think you had, because you could have just been sales rep the, the entire time, nothing wrong with that, but people tapped you on the shoulder and said, no, you need more responsibility. Why do you think that happened?
0: It happens for the same reason I think it happens to a lot of people. The world is made up of two really different kinds of people. The, the people who do the work that comes across their desk, if you will. Like, this is my job. These are my functions. These are the things I'll do. And then there's the people who are thinking, what can I do? Like, of course I have to do my job. I need to fulfill my responsibilities, but what else could I be doing? And that's the person who starts doing a job that doesn't exist or they're becoming a a pure leader, if you will. And those people do that, not necessarily because they're ambitious or that they have like this, this big giving heart as it relates to their time, but probably because they get bored if they just do the same thing. So I think that there's doers, maintainers, and then there's builders. And even within a profession, you know, like say, take attorneys, some attorneys are builders. They're putting together the, the corporate legal thing and they're, they're coming up with a new strategy and, and they're laying out groundwork and they're, they're building something. And then there's other attorneys who handle cases. And when one case is done, they pick up the next and they pick up the next. Uh, this is the same for scientists or for engineers in every field, managers, salespeople, even there's people who like to uh, manage or maintain something, keep it running. And we all need that in every field. And then there's people who that would kill. Mm. I'm one of those people where if left to manage a Taco Bell, it would kill me. I would think I'd really love the opportunity to work at a Taco Bell and, if someone said, hey, Mike, this is a Taco Bell and we'd like for you to, to improve the, you know, the consistency of the placement of cheese on our tacos or, uh, you know, help the cars come through the drive-through faster and build the process. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Now, after a few weeks of making the Mexican pizza, it wouldn't be so fun. So whenever I've been in a role, I'm always kind of looking around and saying, how could all this be better? What can I do? What can I build? And just jumping straight into that building part and trying to find the best people to take over the the maintenance, the the running of things behind, because doing that is, it feels like torture to a lot of people. It's not that those people aren't creative. It's not the thing they want to do. People like you and I want to create, um, and there's other people that want to take care of things.
1: Wow. What a great insight in and of itself. So you, you have a, a knack for being a problem solver and, and again, thinking in a strategic way. And I think people realize that. When did you first flex that muscle that you can recall? And, and has it developed over time? Or again, again is that something that you think, can you, can you even identify the first time you realize that you're more of a builder, more of a creative type that thinks about, hey, how can I improve whatever it is that you're focused on?
0: I think part of it might come from maybe laziness in a way, (laughs) right? Like, like, Hey, this seems like a lot of work. There must be an easier way to do this. Sometimes you can just sit and watch people work. Uh, My parents, a long time, ago were having a pool built in their backyard and I was watching the guys do the work. And I could see that about 80% of the effort going into building the pool was being wasted. So you had a, a bunch of guys back there who just really didn't mind putting every ounce of energy they had into their task. And they got the task done and the pool was beautiful. Uh, they took care of their families. Everything is fine. I've always been that person who, who looks very critically at everything and says, man, uh, this is broken. I kind of assume everything is broken. Uh, that's my pessimistic side. And then my sort of optimistic side is it can be fixed. And more importantly, it should be fixed. Mm. So when I go through the world, everything I look at, I'm not really looking at the thing. I'm wondering how it works, how it could work better. Sometimes it makes me unfocused because instead of just really buckling down and, and doing my job or buckling down and getting what I need done, so much a part of my mind is working on other things that that maybe I'm not even involved in or, or don't matter to me really. The first The first job I had managing anything, I was managing a movie theater. I was 19 years old and I was the manager of a movie theater. The movie theater had two locations and a hundred employees and brought in millions of dollars. And we didn't take credit cards. This was 1999 and movie theaters still didn't take credit cards back then. What? They, they didn't take credit cards. So you'd have, you know, uh, seven, eight, 9,000 people a day come to the movies and, and buying tickets for, you know, the outrageously high price of $6 and 50 cents. And all that came in in cash. And then the concession stand, it's all cash. And, you know, you're working with just a bunch of, of the people who worked there were like 16, 17 years old. Imagine this. Amazing. On a weekend, we'd bring in $400,000 in cash and 90% of it passed through the hands of somebody who makes $425 an hour. So that was a management job, but I found myself, I wanted to learn how to work Excel so that I could build Excel tools to manage a theater better. Payroll at the time, this is 1999, payroll's done on on a sheet of paper about the size of this desk and it was all written in by hand. We ordered our supplies on on a piece of paper, and we faxed it over to somebody. And I don't know what happened from there, but at at 19, and you know, having this first job, I said, "Man, this has all been done the same way for so long." And I started, you know, building spreadsheets that would forecast the need to order products and keep track of inventory and all that kind of stuff. And I enjoyed that part better than making sure that the kids were sweeping up the popcorn when it happened. At the same time. I started then being ridiculously overfocused on a few small things that I felt were critical to the business. One of the most critical things in managing a movie theater is don't let anyone burn the fucking popcorn. <laughs> have you ever smelled burned popcorn? Uh, yes. Yes, I have. It's a horrific yeah. smell. And if you smell burned popcorn, chances of buying popcorn drop precipitously. If you don't buy popcorn, you probably won't buy a soda. I was able to tell by looking after my days off, I could come in and I could look at the the tape receipts from the registers. I could say, you know, God damn it. Somebody burned popcorn around 730 last night, didn't they? I could see the drop in sales. I could see it happening. So I, you know, that was a major problem. So I put a lot of attention into having procedures so that nobody can burn the popcorn. It's sort of like if you run a nuclear submarine, you can't have the reactor melt down. So obviously, burnt popcorn isn't the same as a nuclear meltdown, but it it causes a critical failure in the mission it needs to be focused on for running a sales organization, having an an environment develop where follow-up becomes forgotten is the burning of popcorn Mm. and a sales organization. As soon as the team doesn't feel like working past prospects is just as important as the new ones coming in. Everything starts to unravel. It invalidates the marketing strategy. Costs go up. Everything falls apart. So from the movie theater time of not wanting to have the popcorn burnt to running equipment rental yards and not wanting to run out of scissor lifts to running sales teams and making sure that we never fall behind on follow-up, we have to be focused on what are the key things that will cause this to fall apart you don't have a scissor lift for someone, hey, that's a small item. It's not a big rental, but when they go and get that piece from some other company, they're going to find out maybe they have a cheaper price on something else too. So avoiding the, the thing that can kill you mm-hmm. is an important part of staying alive and it's, it's built into our DNA really. We've evolved into staying focused on avoiding what can kill us, but a lot of people forget about that in business and they, they kind of let those things sneak up and kill them.
1: And every business has their own burnt popcorn scenario where things are going to go sideways and impact the business negatively, whether that be the follow-up in sales or the burning of popcorn in movie theater or what have you. Your story, of course, I know, and I know a lot of people listening, they're just going to see Mike Terry and they're going to be like, oh, I want to listen. So you're going to have a lot of people listening that do know you. But for those that don't know you, What's your story? We know you worked at a movie theater. Was that your first job or did you have something before that? And then what happened after the burnt popcorn days?
0: Yeah, I started working. At, I applied at the movie theater on my 16th birthday and I just, I started sweeping up popcorn and stuff and I worked there, um, back and forth with a stint at in and out Burger for a couple of years with some overlap. By the way, if you're a kid, cause you know, I know you have a big audience Billy with teenagers. So if you're a kid, go work at in an out Burger. It'll be one of the best experiences of your young working life. Yeah, I worked at the, at the movie theater. Um, I worked at Pepsi. I always did route sales to grocery stores and Walmarts and, and Kmarts and things. I also recommend doing a job like that. Doing route sales for a consumer packaged goods company will make every other job you have in life seem amazing and beautiful and enjoyable and just absolutely wonderful. A lot of the problems that people that you and I have worked with, Billy, in in the solar business, the solar business, glorious. It's kind of glamorous in a way because it's you know like we're helping the planet, yada, yada. It's cool because you get to go out and meet people in their homes. Your manager takes you out for food. Um, your work meetings are like parties. You can make good money doing something you enjoy. Working at a place like, and a, nothing against Pepsi, it's the same thing at Coke or Nabisco or Budweiser or any of these places. It's waking up at three o'clock in the morning and getting your ass kicked first by your manager, then by the grocery manager for all your customers, then by the general manager of all the customers. It's a constant ass kicking. Typically, it's a lot of you know 20-year-old people working this job, and you don't know that you're not supposed to have your ass kicked constantly from three o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night. So some days when I feel like, Hey man, life's really hard or my job's not going well, or I'm unhappy with what I'm doing. I walk into a, a Ralph's at seven o'clock in the morning and I see the people who are working super hard, stocking the shelves, keeping things going, placing their orders, getting their ass kicked by the grocery manager. I'm like, man, those people are, are doing something 10 times harder than what I do. And it makes me feel great. I'm certainly not denigrating those people. It was one of the best experiences of my working life. I think that there's a few things that that people should do when they're young to prep themselves for a really successful career. Number one, I think everyone should probably sell something, preferably door-to-door. If you can sell something door-to-door in any way, you learn so much about selling in general, you learn uh, how to form very quick relationships with people, even though it's the shallowest of relationships, you learn how vicious people can be. Mm-hmm. I've done a fair share of going out and knocking on doors over the last 10 years. Some people are wonderful. And understandably, you know, you're annoying someone. They're, they're in the middle of putting together a souffle and you knock on their door. <laughs> it's like, hey, I can get you cheaper electricity. And a lot of people, they're savage, right? And they say horrible things. I was in Illinois just, um, just a few weeks ago. It was 94 degrees. It was like 80% humidity. It was miserable. And I was walking around, knocking on people's doors. We're testing the market. I figure if I can go and knock on doors and sell solar, then probably other people can too. If I can't, then maybe they could. But if I can't do it, I probably don't want to put other people in there. So I'm walking up to this guy's house, and he comes out and he goes, "Hey, man, what's going on?" And he's with a buddy, and it looked like they were just kind of hanging out. I'm like, "Oh, you know," and I, I started giving him my pitch, and they go, "Oh, oh, hey, man, you want a beer?" And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, oh yeah, that would be great." And this guy goes, I'm kidding. Nobody wants what you're selling. Get the fuck out of here. And like, I like I wow. I almost like took two steps back. I was sort of crushed for a split moment because I was out there, I'm working so hard. I'm doing my job. And a lot of people are doing this same job. And this guy was probably normally a really nice guy. But depending on what kind of work people do, they they may not see it as human. The other people who are just treated horribly are. Servers right Waiters waitresses servers, I think if you can spend some time selling something door to door and wait tables, you've learned how to persuade and how to serve and I think that most jobs are a combination of persuading and serving, certainly in the in the sales industry, the sales leadership, business in general it's a combination of persuading and serving
1: yeah, I love that insight and couldn't agree more as a person who's spent a lot of time, both at restaurants as a customer, but spending almost 10 years serving. Yeah. It was the best education on interpersonal communications service and understanding how to meet the needs and everything from expectations to providing guidance and making sure people have an amazing experience all wrapped up into one. When you wait tables and you do it the right way and you, and you do provide the type of dining experience that people want, that's a great tee up for a lot of different careers. Let's go back to the strategic thinking for a moment. Because again, I think that's one of, the, one of the areas that's like a shining example of how you've elevated your career. What's your process? When you have that pessimistic side, which you just admitted is, is sort of your natural state, when that exists, do you have a, a specific process that you go through or a way of thinking that helps you sort of identify specifically what the problem is so that you can evaluate that and then come up with a solution that would make the most sense.
0: No, I'm incredibly unstructured, very undisciplined and not organized. So what that leads to is not having a general process, not having the same way that anything is done, not approaching any two problems really in the same way. I think a lot of people are are very methodical and that serves them really well. I think I take a chaotic approach to problem solving and mostly just kind of start working on things also i, I walk a lot i walk to work I, I work about four and a half miles from home and i walk to the office every day in the morning and when you're walking four and a half miles at 6 30 in the morning there's not a lot to do aside from think and first part of the day your brain's working pretty well people tend to focus on their problems so my problems come to my mind and if I'm walking, i got nothing else to do and no one can bother me, yeah, I start coming up with solutions. I take notes on my phone and then I just kind of get to work on something. I wish I were more structured. I wish I were more disciplined. But if that's something that people know about themselves, that they just don't have that, they can surround themselves with people who do and, and share strengths and get that kind of stuff done.
1: Self-awareness is a powerful thing, right? And, and I'm not surprised by your answer. Maybe some listeners might be. But knowing you as well as I do, I know that you go about things generally the same exact way, but so fascinated by your comments on walking because this is something that I've mentioned in the past on previous shows. There are tons of studies about brainwave activity, specifically the prefrontal cortex and how the brain, part of your brain that does the critical thinking, it's often overworked. So when you're going through your day, most of the time, you're thinking about a lot of things and you're actually causing your brain to be overworked. And it makes it very difficult to have an insight, to have an aha moment, to have something that makes you pull out your phone and want to take a note. When you're walking, when you're taking a shower, when you're frankly on the toilet, those are the times that a lot of people, that's the shit, man. Those are the times people have these aha moments, these insights. And so If you're looking to solve more problems, if you're looking to have more insightful moments, help your brain become more quiet, whether that's going to the gym or going for a walk or what have you, give your brain the chance to actually think. You're going to have a lot more insights when you're not bombarding your brain with a million and one thoughts because that beta wave activity that's kind of ping-ponging neurons so fast and so it's quick, it makes it difficult. And so you need to get into a more calm state, a state where you're not overloaded. So such an interesting insight. I, I love that.
0: It's like a, it's like driving a car. It's the only car you have. The car starts to overheat. You've got to pull over, let it cool down. Because if you say, you know, fuck it, I'm going to carry on and just hit the pedal, the, the thing is going to blow up. And then you don't have a car. You know, I was working in jobs for companies for most of, my life. And about two years ago was the last day I think I ever worked for anyone. I became an entrepreneur, started my own business. And I've completely changed the way that we do things at least three times. One of the times that I realized that what we were doing wasn't going to work, I was on a cruise with my family. Hmm. I was sitting out on the deck, you know, at like 6 30 in the morning, watching the the water, and I realized some things and then both the other times, I really realized that what we were doing wasn't going to work. and We had to do it differently. I was on foot, one time walking, one time running. You're 100% right. When you're in the middle of trying to solve the thing, it doesn't work. It's like, hey, what was the name of the guy who was in the movie uh, about the, you know, and, and you, no matter how much you think about it, it's not going to come to your mind. 30 minutes later, you're taking a leak and you're like, oh, it's John Cusack.
1: Right, of course, right,
0: yeah, and then it's like it's so obvious,
1: it all comes later, so funny, yeah. So, so you you talked about your new entrepreneurial endeavor, which I am, you know, so impressed by what you've done over the last two years as you built HomeLink. And, you know, one of the questions I have is, what have you learned as an entrepreneur? You, You said that you worked in jobs for a long time and you excelled there, you always got promoted, you always ended up leaving, even if it was being fired, right? I think you probably over probably. Pro- exaggerated how many yeah. times you get fired. But that being said, you didn't leave in the same role you started, right? You started sweeping popcorn off the floor. You left as the manager. You started as a consultant. You left as head of marketing. You started as a director or a, or a manager. You leave as a VP at Solar City. So you had success there. You could have kept doing that. But you chose to be an entrepreneur and you've had success in that space. What have you learned?
0: I think the most surprising thing, and if we focus on what surprises us, those are probably the the most important learnings because a surprise comes because you had one perception. It turned out to be another thing. It's not a thing where, you know, I, I had no idea about this. The thing that surprised me the most is the extent to which people don't really want to make money. The kind of people who take on entrepreneurial endeavors, they're driven. They don't need somebody to tell them, go do this, go do that. They, they feel like they never have enough time. Uh, I wish I had more time to do this. I, they have this ever-growing list. i have adding more things to my list of things to do than we're on there, and I do it with glee. Uh, I do it because I want to. Of course, I want to make a lot of money, and I want to have a lot of success, and that drives me. There's never a point where I say, hey, this is probably enough. I'm going to take it easy. That part just, and, and people who feel that, typically will start their own business. They'll they'll be entrepreneurial even if it's within their role. But what, what it's hard for people like that to, to understand is that most people don't think that way. There was a study done. They interviewed, uh, they surveyed American workers, and they asked them, if you could establish your own salary, whatever you want, what would it be? The majority of people surveyed gave themselves In this imaginary world where you can pay yourself as much as you want, the majority gave themselves a salary within 10% of what they were currently making. And only 1% gave a number of a million dollars or more. This tells us that people are a little uncomfortable making a lot more money than they ever have. So they're not really driven to get there, nor are they really willing to do what it takes to get there. Because getting there takes... 10 times more work. Not, it's not twice as much work to make twice as much money. It's 10 times more work. Mm. And they don't, really, they don't really want to do it. And what I've realized is that people basically want a few things. They want to have enough money to have a place to live, to have a big TV, to get fucked up every now and then, and to have sex every once in a while. If people can do those few things within the framework, whatever their life is, they're probably not going to do much more. We live in a country where poor people are overweight and have a 60-inch high-definition TV. You don't have to be exceptional to live a, a life where you can survive and have more food than you need and an endless stream of mindless entertainment. You can have it all while doing the, the very basics. So. Not everybody just wants to sit around and, and eat, right? But the number of people who want to fly above and, and do so much more than they ever have or so much more than everyone else does, it's only a one or two percent. And then we have people who demonize and vilify the people who reach that level. They call them greedy. They call it excessive. And a lot of this, not all of them, but a lot of them are you know, punching out at 458, going home. and and doing the minimum required all the while bitter about the people who are getting promoted or are making more money. And their favorite hobby is to, to, to resent Mm. those people. So when you're, so at solar city, I think at one point there were, I don't know, like 1100 people in the organization for which I was responsible. And every one of them was there for some combination of, I want to get paid and I like what I do right? There, there's some combination of that for everyone. And the way that a lot of places run a company is like, hey, let's set up incentives for people. We can make it so that they can make as much money as they want to. If you build your philosophy around giving people the opportunity to make as much money as they want to, your business is going to fail because they don't want to make a lot of money. The person who's putting that comp plan out or coming up with the idea, they want to make a lot of money. And they're under the misconception That everybody in the organization also wants to make a lot of money. Well, surely if we offer a bonus for whatever this is, then everyone will do it. They won't. What they'll do is they'll do what it takes to to not get fired, to not look bad or be embarrassed. And mostly to like, it's sad how many people do what they do every day to avoid getting their ass kicked by their boss. I just don't want to get nagged by my boss or whatever. So when I went and started Homelink. I was like, hey, this is going to be great. We're going to give people incredible earning opportunities. We're going to make it commission only. And people will be able to make really strong commissions and they'll want to sell a lot. And what I started seeing was that people would start working. They would sell two or three, make two or three sales. The first paycheck or second paycheck comes and they're taking a week off, taking 10 days off. And it happens still, Billy. People get paid and they go, hey, that was great. I'm going to take some time off. And my natural instinct is to to criticize them for that. But there's some beauty in that for them. They're going to go enjoy their time and enjoy their life. My enjoyment and pursuit of life comes in pursuing the, the next deal, the next stage of growth, seeing another person succeed. But we have to understand that there's those two really different kinds of people. People who just kind of want to survive and the people who want to fly above.
1: Yeah, and I think those that want to thrive and fly above, they're the ones that are taking on new ideas, concepts, projects, becoming entrepreneurs, taking risks, doing things that are going to, in their mind, help them leave a legacy that goes beyond what may be the norm. When you are that type of person, I think you're more prone to setbacks. You're more prone to failure. You're more prone to challenges. What challenges, failures, or setbacks have you experienced that you've learned from in your life?
0: There's the small setbacks that happen on a daily basis. I'm a person who tries tons of things. Most of the things I try fail miserably. And the response from a lot of people is, oh man, you shouldn't have have done that because it didn't work. (laughs) But the fact that it didn't work might be the best reason to have done it. When we do something and it doesn't work, well, maybe we invested a, a few thousand dollars in this marketing plan and it didn't work out. But what we learn from that is that this other thing will work and that drives a lot more value than the couple sales that you would have got if the marketing plan had worked out. And the sort of beautiful thing about trial and error is that you don't need everything to work. Only one thing mm. needs to work and that makes up for all the failures. But most people, and it's our, again, it's our, it's our natural state is to avoid failure as, uh, people living in the wild 20,000 years ago, most failures meant death. If you made the wrong decision living on the plains somewhere, you got eaten or you starved to death or there was no, well, I won't have the luxury item. Mistakes caused you to die. Um, And for most of human history, nothing that you did in your day-to-day had the potential to really improve your life there was maybe finding a mate and then there was a whole bunch of not dying <laughs> right the not dying so part true. comes naturally now like even the even the laziest weakest people most of them won't die they'll keep living and this is a this is an achievement of human development but it's also the end in a way of the natural selection that brought us up to where we are, so now we put our arms around each other and and do it as a as a society. God, that got heady there.
1: No, I love like, it. That got deep. I love it. No, it's, Not so, it's so deep. I love where you're going because I think all too often we forget where we came from or we don't think about like thousands of years ago or even more than a few thousand. So I think that's a great a great point. But but keep going, man.
0: Perspective is so important, Billy you know, we have a recency bias. Everything that happened just recently is the most important thing that ever happened. So, of course, everything that happened since the the founding of the United States or since the beginning of the Trump administration, that's shaping the world. It's shaping human history. Really, the 2 million years or so that we have been around before anything was written down did more to shape the way that our lives exist today. You and I sitting here today, all of that did far more for that than Plymouth Rock or the, you know, the Constitution or whatever. All of our recent achievements happened because of our ancestors not getting eaten while they were, you know, living out on the plains. People make their decisions because their brain is programmed that way. It's very hard to go against that. So in today's world to be an entrepreneur, to be a risk taker, to move up in a company, whatever someone's trying to do. You have to avoid or override a lot of the instincts that's kept our ancestors alive. They didn't take risk because they die. We take risks so that we can thrive.
1: What do you think the biggest reason people don't reach a high level of success? Is it that? Is it something else? Like what are the factors? You know, you've, you've highlighted a few things already, but Let's face it. There's a lot of people out there that for whatever reason, they don't reach high level of success. They, they, might, they might be these maintainer types. I, I don't know. But if you could think of the biggest reason, what do you think it is?
0: Well, first of all, maintainer types can reach an absolutely astonishing level of success. There's all kinds of functions that are very maintainer in nature, but critical to what we do. Your, any business out there will absolutely fall apart. Take a company like Tesla, right? Elon's all about genius and creation. If there's no one working at that company who's just taking care of the minutia, the monotony Mm -hmm. of a car going through the production line, uh, the place is going to fall. It doesn't matter how many geniuses you have if you don't have those people who are designed to keep things moving. That being said.
1: And when you're saying and a maintainer type can have high level position and and, and be successful just because they're a maintainer doesn't necessarily mean that. Absolutely. But they're, they're unsuccessful. They yeah, could be totally
0: They could be the director of the FBI. They could be a, a CEO. Companies go from needing the, the genius type. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm the founder type. And the company at some point has to be handed off to somebody who just knows how to run a, a solid operation. And then you have people within the organization adding genius at their own levels. But I think there's really two reasons why people, let's, let's break people out into to two categories there's people who are more naturally able to succeed and people who have serious setbacks against them so if you're born in a small village in Honduras your opportunity to become hugely successful in life is much smaller than if you're born looking like one of us in southern california in 1978 it's easier so if you take the people if you if you break them into groups of equal opportunity the people within those groups who succeed or don't succeed. And what you asked is what drives that? Number one, a lot of people don't want to, it's not their goal. They never went after it. They didn't think to go after it. It's not how they're made. So put those people aside. A lot of people, they, they think they want it. Maybe they do want it. So I think the the shortest answer to your question is they don't try hard enough or they try once. It doesn't work and they, they stop trying. The truth is that shit's hard. It's really hard. There's setbacks and there's sweat and you lose and you get your ass kicked. But the people who make it, I think, usually tried harder. So why
1: don't you think people try as hard as they could or should to reach those high levels of success? Is it, is it because it's so hard or is there other factors involved?
0: I think it goes back to that evolutionary piece were designed to survive and reproduce. Everything beyond that is a luxury. And if you look at the way that uh, any human civilization develops, it would never make sense for everyone to have everything. Some people have to have more. Some people have to have the power. What if everybody was Barack Obama? You know, you can't have 360 million presidents of the Harvard Law Review. You can't have it doesn't make sense. There has to be somebody at the top and there has to be someone down here. So there's a, there's a natural distribution that's going to happen in our population that says, look, some people have to be more driven than others. And we might think it's a choice. I might think that I chose to be driven. I probably didn't. There's something in my DNA. There's something about the way that my brain formed that just makes me act this way. Um, so we can't hold it against people who who don't put as the, the effort in, who don't make the achievements. Maybe it's not that they sat down and thought about it all day one day and say, you know what, I'm just going to live a very sort of average life and I'm never going to try that hard. No, they were probably built that way. That person could change their mind, right? And they could overcome that natural tendency. But I think a lot of things are the way they are because it's the way that it is.
1: What advice do you have then if, if that's the case, you know, knowing that there is going to be a certain amount of environmental impact versus the kind of the natural state of things, which you're born with a certain preset innate ability and either desire or not desire. You're just sort of born with that. But let's say somebody listening to this show is like, well, hey, I, I do have the desire to be successful. I do have the desire to elevate and, and move up. What, what advice do you have for that person who maybe for whatever reason hasn't found success yet, but they, they do have the desire, they do have the heart and the want to get there?
0: I guess keep going. Uh, here's a fact. okay. Uh, 100% of the part of my life where I know as much as I do right now is going to happen after right now. Every day before today, I knew less than I know right now. So for people who aren't at the spot they're in, they're learning while they do it. They're growing. And literally every day of their life is the day of their life that they have the most experience built up. So it's also the day of their life where they have the most potential that they've built up. So a lot of times when we try and try and try, it feels harder because it hurts our hearts to fail. For so much or for so long, but if we can stay focused on the fact that every time we try it we're actually stronger than we were the time before, that might make it easier every day you're you're, you're should be better off, better suited to, to tackle life than you were before because you've done it for longer
1: mm. yeah, that's powerful, and I think recognizing that the learning that exists on our daily in our daily lives matters, and even though we may not have all reached sort of the pinnacle of where we think we can be. Don't devalue what you've become up until today, because every day you are more experienced and have learned more than the day previous.
0: Yeah. You know, and you said, hey, what advice do you have? I, I got some more. There, there's things that make me crazy. Get up early. The number of people who are sleeping until nine o'clock blows my mind. I don't think there's a lot of people who seriously want to make it in life and they're sleeping until nine o'clock. It's just that that's just not the case. Now, if you're making it in the music industry or there's something where the lifestyle is affiliated with that, great. Right. But not everyone's going to be post Malone. Right. (laughs) So this is a show we're kind of talking about. "Eh, Listen, you am a sales leader, right? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not going to be like out in a club until five. Forget all that. Get up early and and start doing something right. Number two, watch how much of your time is dedicated to entertainment. If you're spending five hours a day watching, you know, looking at memes, Mm -hmm. like I love memes as much as the next guy. My son sends me the best one. So I feel like I've got the filtered view, but if you're constantly ingesting mindless entertainment, you know, funny YouTube videos, scrolling through galleries, whether you're on Reddit or whatever, like that stuff's a black hole. And I find myself going into them from time to time, but I don't allow it to take up a lot of time. And uh, if you're spending hours and hours a day on entertainment or watching television or binge-watching shows, which should be done from time to time, we need entertainment, but that can't be your life if you want to get ahead. People who get ahead sacrifice entertainment. They haven't seen all the Marvel movies or they can't watch every single sporting event that happens this week. There's no time to do it all. And every time we choose to do something, you know, I think you used to say this a lot, you're choosing to not do something else. That's right. So when we're going to sit there with our phone out in front of our face for five hours, instead of working on pursuing our goals, we're deciding to live that entertained, live for right now life rather than building Mm. for tomorrow.
1: Yeah, it's the whole create versus consume paradigm. And we live in a society where we have unlimited exposure to great entertainment. And and some of it may, you know, I use that word great sort of loosely because it's all in the eye of the beholder, but there's no shortage of things for people to be entertained by. At the same time, when you are saying, hey, I'm gonna spend this time doing this, you are by default saying you're gonna not spend time creating producing doing something you talked about getting up early and you said like start doing something what does that mean start doing what is there a suggestion you know cuz you could start watching mindless entertainment which sure. clearly as you pointed out is probably not ideal what should they start doing
0: getting the the toughest parts over first is always a good approach we work for someone who said eat the big frog first right you know lift the big rocks whatever your thing is so if your thing is you know you just can't stand to get a workout in then maybe get a workout in first if you dread you know if you're a small business owner and you dread the bookkeeping part of your business maybe start with that first so the rest of your day can be dedicated towards your actual business so maybe getting the hardest or most dreadful parts out of the way first or maybe for some people it's getting up and start learning something on the when i'm walking to work i like to listen to a book I subscribed to Blinkist. Mm-hmm. You heard of Blinkist? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so you get like a a Cliff's Notes version of some kind of book and then it's never enough information to to really learn the whole concept, but it can point you in the direction of what great books to go uh, and read or listen to the whole thing. But if you think about the difference between spending uh, 25 minutes hearing the boiled down version of somebody's life work that they've put into a book versus watching an uh, episode of Friends for the ninth time, right? You're gonna get more out of, of of trying to pick up new knowledge. A lot of people focus on being efficient or doing things like really well. The most important thing about doing something is to do it. I'm not really that good at at any one thing. I'm not a master of anything, but I do a lot of things, and I'm always trying to get better at those things. So if I spend Five hours working on the software that we want to use for our business, and I'm just okay at developing software, that's better than spending those five hours doing nothing and hoping that someday I'll hire someone who really knows what they're doing to mm. build that software, to err on the side of action.
1: You bring up a good point. It's something that I struggle with, honestly, is, is like, okay, I look at time. I look at this finite resource that we have. I know it's a scarce we just, we only have a certain amount of seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years in our life, right? Whatever that is, like th- those add up to some number that it's going to be when we, when we're gone, we're gone and and we're not going to get the second that just happened. It's over, right? And so we just got to think about what's happening now and in the future. And so obviously being efficient and being effective is a good idea, but we're not all as efficient or as effective as we can be. I can speak from, you know, being a bit vulnerable there's often times where I think, wow, I either didn't need to do that or I spent a lot of time working on something. And I sort of rationalize it by saying, hey, slow and steady or, you know, a tortoise wins the race, that sort of thing. How do you draw the balance, though? Because like uh, on one hand, you know, as long as you're taking action and working, you will eventually it's like the pool workers, right? They'll eventually build the pool. It looks great. They may not have been as, as efficient or as effective as they could be, but the pool was built. The pool looks great. Um, on the other hand, they could have been a lot more efficient they could probably build more pools. Life's a weird thing. Like it's not black and white. How do you sort of draw that balance in life? And I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on, in that realm.
0: Oh, well, people are going to move at their own pace, but we got to remember that most people are moving at a, at a pace of at almost none. So it's easy to to look at the guys building the pool and say, oh my God, how inefficient are these guys being for every, they're doing something? That's right. And for every guy that's, that's working in a, in a, painfully inefficient way at building that pool, there's a hundred people who are just sitting around sad that they don't have uh whatever they don't have, mm. right? Instead of going and doing something about it, you know, uh, in that one example, a lot of these guys, you know, they're here, they're first generation from another country. They may or may not speak the core language that that most people are speaking. And yet they're finding a way. You and I worked in the solar business and there was this huge subset of the customers that were, that are buying our product that don't speak English and they own a home and they own a home in Southern California. And imagine, imagine how difficult it would be to go to another country, not speaking a language and be successful enough to be able to buy a home in one of the most overpriced real estate markets in the world where down the street, there's somebody who is 10 years older than that person who was born here, had all the opportunity, maybe even went to college. And they're like, man, nobody can afford anything here. The opportunity here sucks, right? They're they're just going to sit around and complain about how hard everything Mm -hmm. is, where this guy just went out and did it. So I think your original question is like, how do you balance it all? I think, uh, for me, I find myself wasting time constantly, constantly, right? Like I'm not, we don't get on uh, this radio show and be like, Hey, we're an example of what to do. It's about being conscious of, of what your weaknesses are. When I find myself wasting time, I try to get myself back on track. And I think that we talked about this before that, that a lot of time you manage your life like Autopia at Disneyland. And if you don't, (laughs) if you don't know what Autopia at Disneyland is, it's a, it's a car ride. The kid gets in and they've got a steering wheel and they've got a gas pedal. And they can move the wheels, but there's this guide in between. So you'll bounce off, it, you'll bounce off. And The older your kid gets, the more of the actual driving they do. But all of us are really going through life like Autopia cars. There's something that keeps us from going too far in one direction or the other. But we're doing some of the driving at any given point. So as leaders, we help become that middle sort of curb and our, our people's Autopia car that keeps them heading in the right direction. But we try to show them how the the gas and the and the wheels work so that they're driving the car themselves as much as possible. But we have to we have to build our own center curb and our own life of Autopia that keeps us generally on track. Mm-hmm. But we've also got to let ourselves bump into that curb every now and then because we're not paying attention. It's right. Fun.
1: Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think we're prone, at least speaking from my own personal experience, sounds like yours as well. We're prone to maybe get off track a little bit. But if you could have some mechanism or some way to keep on track, to just keep going, right? Keep going. And Gary Vaynerchuk has this quote that I I, I often think about. He says, don't judge yourself on the daily, judge yourself on the yearly. And what that tells me is we're going to have good days and bad days. We're going to have days where we feel like we did not get anything done productive. It was just like a waste of a day. And then there's other days where we get tons of things done. And I think for your own mental well-being, just remember that if you're consistent and if you continue to get back on track, even if you get off track for a little bit, it's going to help. To your other point about an immigrant that comes here, they don't have the language skill, even the education necessarily, or, or a lot of other factors that are involved. But what they do have is perspective. Perspective is a powerful thing because they're coming here knowing what it's like in their home country and how probably how much more challenging it is there versus somebody who's here who's taking for granted the opportunity that they have, right? That They've grown up. They don't know what they have. They don't really get it. And so when you see somebody who's had a successful business, who owns a home and lives in Southern California, an immigrant that has made it, one of the reasons I believe is they know just what the opportunity is here. Which I think is fascinating. I'm I'm curious when you think of entrepreneurs that you've seen, whether they're an immigrant or, or or whatever, what commonalities exist in in people that, as an entrepreneur, they've they've had success. What what are those themes or consistencies that you found present in entrepreneurs that are successful? It's
0: more often about other people than themselves, right? You can be kind of a, a one person show, right, and go out and, and do a bunch of deals or make a bunch of money or whatever. But I think that entrepreneurs surround themselves with like great people. It sounds sort of like almost cliche to say it. I think also they seize the opportunity at hand. I think that very often we're in a money booth, you know, a money booth where you Mm -hmm. stand there, it's clear sides and the money's blowing around and, and there's a countdown timer. I think a lot of times that we're going to look back at a certain part of our life and go, Oh my God, I was in a money booth and I just stood there. while while the countdown timer went down. So that might be, hey, look, this is a new emerging market and there's incredible opportunity there. And people are like, oh yeah, it's going to be great. And they kind of watch it happen. And by the time they really get going, the opportunity is dying down where an entrepreneur looks and goes, let's get it while the getting's good. So if you're in a new industry, you're in a money booth, the countdown timer is going, the money is blowing around. Grab as much of it as you can because you don't know when the timer is going to stop the money's going to start blowing around and now you're picking the last dollar bill out of the vent at the top. So I think that, I think that to your point, the the person who comes from outside of this system, immigrant or otherwise, they realize that they're in a money booth mm. because they weren't in the money booth. They see the money flying, They go, Oh, this is amazing. I have to get it. If you're born with dollar bills flying everywhere around, the dollar bill is being representative of opportunity. You may not stop and focus on grabbing it because you think it will always be there and maybe it will maybe it won't but anyone who looks back over the last 10 years they're gonna they're gonna realize that at certain times they've been in the money booth and you know they were watching youtube instead of grabbing the 20 dollar bills that are hitting them in the face if you're in a money booth get the money
1: yeah i've heard you share that that metaphor before and i I love it and so Kind of going back to my question about the the themes for, for entrepreneurs, is it just that they realize they're in a money booth or are there other factors involved?
0: Probably starts with identifying opportunity and then it goes to understanding what needs to be done to capitalize on it. And then there's the willingness to do those things. You have to be willing to fail. And for most people, that's the number one deterrent of trying. I don't want to fail. I don't want to lose what I already have. You know, they do all these studies where they, they give an op- person an opportunity to win this much money or they give them an opportunity that causes them to lose that same amount. Mm. People will take far greater risks, right? Or they'll, they'll go to much more significant lengths to keep the $20 they have than they would to gain $20 that they, that they don't have. It's fear of loss, yeah, right? So when engaging in entrepreneurial activities, you're risking losing You could lose your money. You could lose your time. Like, oh, I wasted my time. I could have been working at a job and getting benefits, right? People don't want to lose their benefits. This is one of the funniest things to me and the whole world. People go, yeah, I know I could make twice as much money, but I've got benefits. Yeah, cool, dude. They are deducting $800 a month out of your paycheck to cover your end of your health insurance that costs the company $1,200. You've sold your fucking soul for a $400 subsidy. For your health insurance, where you could have been working on your own, making an extra $800 a day. The number of people who, who have come and you know, sort of probed the idea of working at Homelink, uh, the company I run today, they go, yeah, but what about benefits? Uh, help me understand what you mean by benefits. Well, you know, health insurance. Uh, tell me how that worked at your last job. And they ultimately decide, hey, I'm going to go take this other job that has these benefits, and they'll make about half the money. But they feel great about it because they're they're not losing that benefit right this is This is one of the great ways that companies trap their people by giving them things that aren't really valuable.
1: yeah, they'll do a lot more to avoid losing something than they would to to gain something. It's kind of like people would much rather be avoid being wrong or avoid, you know avoid being wrong than to actually be right. It's interesting, you know you talked about the cliche of, of finding the the team or developing, developing the right people around you. And cliches exist for a reason. So I think it stands to reason that when you do build a team that is the right group of people, that is a huge factor in accelerating one's success in an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial venture. You've had success in your career as a leader. Obviously, as an entrepreneur, you have to be both a leader and a business owner. You're wearing a lot of different hats, like clearly. Let's focus on the leadership within a company first, and then we'll talk about the entrepreneurship. And then in a few minutes, we're going to get into the lightning round, which is the way we'll we'll end this session. But for somebody that's just starting out as a leader, as somebody that is leading other human beings, whether it be a sales leader or otherwise, what advice would you have for that person to thrive?
0: Being a sales leader is a different kind of leader. Okay, I, I think that in a lot of roles, the function of the people on your team is is pretty far removed from the function of, of leadership. If you watch the movie Gladiator, right? Russell Crowe, his character, like Braveheart, these movies, they go out and they fight and they're like the leader of the whole army, but they're also like slaying tons of dudes. So I think if you're, if you're a leader in a sales organization, keep selling. A lot of times the leader of the sales organization is promoted from within it. They immediately stop selling the product. They immediately begin to lose touch with the customer base, with the product itself, with the sales process. They forget what it's like to be out in a home. They're Um, not in the trenches. Yeah. They're not in people's houses. They're not presenting to uh, customers at their offices, whatever the thing is. So if you're a sales leader, keep selling, does two things. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you in touch. And you can typically outperform a pretty solid number of your salespeople while doing the sales effort part-time it's going to show people in your organization that when you say something, it comes from experience that what you're saying actually works. They can see it working even to today. I'll close a couple of deals. In addition to being on the podcast with you, it helps show people on the team that, that what we're saying makes sense. So everybody at homelink is selling deals. Uh, it'll always be that way. No reason not to. And most of the best-selling organizations, I see the leaders very much involved in the sales. I think it's super important.
1: Let's stick with sales leaders. Uh, you know, I, we could talk about leadership in general too. Yeah, but, I don't really want to. Okay. Well, let's just talk about sales leadership.
0: Yeah. On top of being involved in sales, it's about focusing on the right things. We talked earlier about, uh, about focusing on efforts and focusing on um, the, the work itself, not just the results. Of course, there has to be results management. We have to set high expectations for salespeople. But it's very much about getting into the, to the trenches. No matter who you are, no matter what level you're at in a selling organization, you've got to get down to the deal level on a regular basis. Go look at a deal that hasn't sold. Look at a deal that's sold but hasn't completed yet. Look at a deal that's made its way all the way through and, and look at it on a deal-by-deal deal level It really helps you stay in touch with what's going on and makes you better Helps you know what to, to focus on with your team.
1: I'm Mike, I got to take a page out of your playbook. What else?
0: To be highly, to be critical and supportive at the same time. Uh, it's important for salespeople to know that they're supported, but not get too comfortable, right? We can't just give them nothing but high fives. They need to be constantly challenged. You need to be challenged. I need to be challenged. So challenging people and setting high expectations while celebrating people's victories is a really important balance to keep up.
1: Yeah, no, It's such a great point. Well, I'm sure you've had role models in your life, either in sales or, or just generally. I'm curious who stands out as a role model or somebody that you've looked to as an example that you've followed in your own life. And what example did they set that that was most meaningful for you?
0: My dad, you know, and my dad was never in sales. He was never really in business per se. My dad spent his whole life as a police officer. But what I learned from my dad was I never saw him stop working and I never saw him settle for what he was doing. And I never saw him feel like the way that something worked was okay. So he was, in a way, you know, I think I'm, you know, I like to think I'm a lot like my dad in the terms of this can be better, I can do more. So throughout his police career, he was, you know, everything from, you know, patrol to detective, he was undercover. And he hung out with criminals all day. He worked at the state level to increase the sort of weapons capabilities of local police departments. He worked um, on communication systems. He helped uh, during the transition of getting people switched from 911, going all to you know, some central place from cell phones to really working just like a, a local phone. And he, he was involved with all those things and was always, he was always asking like, what more can I do? And always willing to take on extra work. When I was a little kid, you know, he would work security on a set of, you know, TVs and movies, you know, to get ahead on money and he never seemed to, uh, to sit down and, and waste time and he still doesn't. Um, so yeah, my dad's a incredible role model for
1: me. It sounds like work ethic is the theme there and, and not. Not ever settling, regardless of the situation, you know, always looking for ways to build upon his, his career. And even though he has a, what would now we consider as a unique, long-term career doing, doing one thing in law enforcement, it's still easy for you to look at and admire his work ethic throughout that journey. So Mike, one of the things that you admitted a, a little bit ago is that you're, you're not necessarily the most organized. I'm you're, a mess. You're a mess, right? Okay. So even though you're a mess, you, you get a lot done. Do you have any time management strategies that you employ in your own life that help you be as effective or as productive as possible?
0: Yeah. So I do well by making commitments to other people because making a commitment to yourself is very easy to break. Uh, It's easy to tell yourself, oh, I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow. If you say, hey, Joe, meet me at the gym tomorrow at uh, at five o'clock, you're not going to let Joe down and you're going to be there at the gym. So I like to commit to people on our team. Like if we're looking at rolling out a new product and if I know in my head, I want to roll it out on March 1st, I'm going to go ahead and commit to the team ahead of time. Guys, we're going to roll this project out March 1st. And then I put it on my calendar and put a couple reminders in between. And while I might end up waiting until February, whatever the last day of February is to, to get that done. Is it 28? Is that, is it the short one? Yeah.
1: I should so, know. That's the month I was born in. It yeah.
0: is. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I think that committing to other people is helpful to help me stay on track. And then uh, I always have the things that just can't be missed, um, the issues that can't be dropped. At the top of my inbox, uh, Gmail, you know there's probably about uh, fifteen starred emails right now, and it's impossible for me to get down to see the most recent email without seeing that list of fifteen open issues that require my monitoring or or constant access to
1: so those things don't slip through the
0: cracks. yeah, there's some things that if they slip through the cracks you're going to you're going to hurt the business, you're going to hurt somebody who who supports you, you're going to hurt a customer. And those are things you can't let happen. So by, by putting yourself in a way where you have to dig through those every time you go to do a mundane thing or you go to do a procedural thing, they're always there and you can't miss them. So keeping your priorities straight, knowing which things can't be missed and, and keeping them in a place is super important. But yeah, I, I, I miss a lot of things and I, I fall behind on a lot of things and it's a constant struggle. One of the things that you take for granted when you're working in a corporate setting is something like having an assistant i wish that uh my business was in a place where i could afford to go back and hire andrea right uh she's amazing she would basically be my manager and uh it's kind of a goal to get to a point where i can hire someone to to manage me
1: yeah i think having someone that can help us be hold ourselves accountable is a valuable thing whether that be an assistant are your employees? Being a bit vulnerable myself, I do tend to have times and moments where I'm less organized than I really should and want to be. And it does allow things to get a bit chaotic and messy and crunchy. And if we don't allow ourselves to leverage those around us to kind of keep ourselves and the momentum that we have on on pace with where we need to go, I think that is not ideal. So the last question I have before we get into the lightning round is really about rituals and habits, which for somebody like you and I, maybe we have them for a bit or not. Curious if you have any habits or rituals that stick out. You know, I think of the athletes that have a system in place or the way they approach the play, messing around with their gloves or, or whatever, you know, I think people do tend to develop habits or rituals in life and in business. Curious at what, what habits you have that, that you, you'd like to share.
0: Would I be the worst podcasting subject ever if I just answer with a no? Not
1: at all. That allows us to get into the lightning round, which is a quick hitting and opportunity for you to answer a question about a situation or an emotional state and just give me your gut reaction. The first thing that pops in your mind. So very fir-
0: excited about this lightning the round.
1: First question, Michael, is what excites you? Aside from the lightning round, of course, what excites you?
0: I was going to say lightning rounds, but that feels too on the nose. Change excites me. Love that. What scares you? Change scares me. (laughs) What surprises you? Most everything.
1: (laughs) Love it. Okay, so Mike, if you feel comfortable sharing, when's the last time you cried and why?
0: I almost cried a few minutes ago talking about my dad. So that's great. I'm at a point in my life where both of my kids are... Are growing up. My daughter's seventeen. My son's nineteen. My son's in his first year of college. My daughter's going away. Woo! Every time I, uh, yeah, man. Every time Hunter has to, uh, every time my my boy heads back to school, it's tough. You know, because uh, you, s- I've spent my entire adult life raising kids, and you know they're the most valuable outcome of our life. Like everything that we do in our lives is really set up so that these little people that we create turn out great, and we get to enjoy them. I cry over my kids quite a bit. And then I, I dropped, a, dropped a paint can on my toe a couple weeks ago. I almost cried right then. I hurt <laughs> real bad. Yeah, yeah the,
1: the kids, you can't help but well up a bit when you think about them. And I love the way you put that. There is no more important outcome in, of our lives. Of course, this is for, our, for the parents out there than, than, than our children. So I love that, man. What, what book have you recommended more than any other book in your life?
0: I'm going to go with two. Go for um, it. One is Influence by Saldini. And the other one is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Between those two books, I think any salesperson, sales leader, business person, if, to me, if you're going to read two books, make it those two.
1: Yeah. Incredible. It's funny you bring up Influence because I, I just connected with Robert Caldini on LinkedIn. And if you happen to be listening, I'd love to have you as a guest. I'm going to actually reach out to him in the near future to see if he'd be open to coming on Inside Out. So, Mike, if you could spend one hour with anyone, living or dead, who would it be and why?
0: George Washington. I think it's uh safe to say that the American experiment is probably the most successful that our world has ever seen in the in the terms of the scope of the success of our country, its influence around the world, everything that it's achieved, you know, from a positive standpoint. If you want to look at negative things, this thing that is America is one of the most significant developments in the history of this planet as far as civilization goes. And uh, as a history student myself, it's hard to point back and find one person who is more pivotal and making all this happen. And uh, he was able to do it with such sort of um, humility right? And, and really seems to have done everything he did for us. Uh, in today's world where everyone's out for themselves and our political climate being as, as sort of awful, frankly, as it is, and the way that our, our politics today are almost completely driven by the interests of very few people who are just incredibly wealthy, powerful, and looking out for themselves, here was a man who had the opportunity to, to basically take any role he wanted. He chose to be a servant, and the things that we can learn from, from that man. Are invaluable.
1: Mm. It'd be nice to say a thank you as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty cool. I haven't heard that one before. I like it. If you had the chance, what would you tell your 20 year old self?
0: It's so tempting, right? There's the stupid answer like, oh, buy Amazon stock or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) But I kind of feel like uh, if you went back and tried to keep yourself from making the mistakes that you made, you might screw it all up. So, I don't think I would tell myself anything because I'm really happy with where I am in life. I, I love the way that things have turned out so far. And I'd, I'd hate to take the, uh, the farmers or the sports almanac back in time, like back to the future style sure. and end up with Biff Tannen having a giant casino in the middle of Santa Clarita.
1: You don't want to disappear in your photo either. No, that's I don't want an, to disappear. That's an interesting, uh, interesting insight, man. So Mike, life is a funny thing and there's lots of, uh, ups and downs. Curious if you have any regrets in life, and if so, what are they?
0: I think the regrets thing really goes back to the same thing as, hey, what do you go back and tell yourself? I've made a ton of mistakes for sure, and I'll I'll make more today and and tomorrow and and so forth. I probably should have started working more independently more early on, but that's looking back with the perspective of, of all the knowledge I have today. If I had tried to do the things I'm doing now five years ago, it probably wouldn't have gone as well. So there's nothing I'd go back and, and change because it got me where I am.
1: Yeah, that no, makes sense. And 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 so, Mike, you, your success as a leader is valuable to those listening. What advice would you have for a brand new leader that's not necessarily sales, but just general leader? What, what advice would you have if you could boil it down to one thing? What would you share with them?
0: This lightning round is tough, Billy, right? It's, no, it's, no one said it's going to be easy. Yeah, no, it, It's it's shocking.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, who's your greatest mentor and, and what did you learn from them?
0: So let me just share a, a really valuable piece of advice or, or sort of a, an insight that I got at one point, a guy named Peter that I worked for. Mm, you knew? Yeah. Uh, I find myself frustrated a lot with other people. And for a very long time in my career, I had a hard time working with certain people. If I had to categorize which kinds of people I had a hard time working with, it was the people who didn't perform well in their job. People who just either they didn't work hard or they weren't very good at what they did. Invariably, uh, the people who were high performing and and did well at their job liked working with me and I liked working with them. And the people who sucked thought I was a dick, Mm. probably because I was. So Peter came in my office one day and he said to me, and, and I tell people this all the time, it's super valuable. I said, listen, most people in the world are average. And if you lined everyone up, whether it's all the HR people or all the recruiters or and then you you cut a line down the middle of like the middle one, that's the average, exactly half are below average. So if you think that you're going to go through life only working with exceptional people and everyone's going to be as smart as you'd want them to be, or as hardworking as you'd want them to be, you're always going to be frustrated. You're always going to be pissed off. People are always going to hate you. You're always going to hate them. Like It's a whole mess. So by just stopping and remembering that most people are just everyday people, and guess what? You're probably not as smart as you think, or as good as you think, or as experienced as you think. And guess what? You might be average too.
1: You might be in the middle. Yeah. That's a powerful way of uh, thinking. And I think resetting perhaps expectations of, of who you're interacting with. Because clearly not every single person, as, as Peter pointed out and as you're pointing out now, not every single person is going to be ex- as exceptional as maybe you are. So so Mike, speaking of being exceptional, you've had a lot of achievements in your life, not least of which is your, are your two incredible children who I have the privilege of knowing and and seeing them grow up. So I'm sure that's probably your most proud achievement. But Aside from them and what you've done there as, as a phenomenal father and parent to them, what achievement are you most proud of?
0: The feeling or the emotion of pride is one that largely escapes me. I think that my makeup is more one that's likely to focus on what else can I do. Every time it feels like an achievement, it feels more like okay, well, God, I need to keep moving this next thing. There was one day in my life that I that I just won that I remember feeling truly proud of something I had done. And I, and it was a new emotion for me. And I don't say that like in a self-deprecating way, I've achieved a lot of things, right? I've done good things and you go, ah, that was good. But the one time in my life that I was like, wow, I'm like proud of myself. I think I was, must've been 33 or 34 years old. I graduated from college. So I started going to like junior college, right out of high school or whatever, dropped out pretty quickly because I was working and making money and it and I didn't come from a family where people went to college. My parents didn't. It wasn't a thing. That wasn't like, a, oh, you're going to finish school and go to college. But as my kids started getting uh, a little older, you know, they were moving up through elementary school or whatever, I felt like, you know, if I'm going to expect my kids to go to college and I'm going to talk to them about how important education is, I should go to college and I did. So through a couple of different jobs, I'd go to class at night, you know, like six o'clock to nine 45 or whatever the thing is. And, uh, it was Cal state Northridge. I got a degree in history. It's super valuable in my sales career. But as I stood there with a bunch of, uh, 21 year old kids getting a diploma in a, in a subject that I would, that I would really never use professionally. I was sort of overwhelmed with an accomplishment that was in and of itself it was an end. It's not a thing that needs to be built upon. I don't plan on being a historian. I don't even really know that much about history. But it was really hard because I was raising a family, building a career, doing all these things. And I think that uh, it was a great moment for me and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything.
1: I love it. Thanks for sharing that special moment. It, it's both touching and you know, it just shows that sometimes it may not happen in the way we envision. It may not happen in the way that society believes it should happen. But for those that stick with it, for those that have the ability to put yourself in a situation where even though you had a lot going in your life, you made a point to complete that. And I'm sure it was a fulfilling moment in your life where you felt this, this sense of gratification that you know you, the hard work paid off and you did reach the, the finish line. So speaking of the finish line, we're, we're near that today. Um, I have two more questions for you. The first of which is, We've learned a lot about you, Mike, in these moments that we've shared together as we're having this conversation. What might surprise the audience listening to this show about you that we haven't yet learned?
0: I think that uh, for people who have worked on my teams in the past, especially you know more recently. So when you work in a big organization, people don't know you really well. They, you know, not everyone in your team has ever even talked to you. When you're running a company or when you're running a big organization or a big sales team or anything like that, I think people sort of assign some sort of like attribute of strength to you or whatever. And they think that you really have your act together whatever. And I think what might surprise people who work for me is that I'm just as much of a mess as they are. I'm emotional. I'm disorganized. I get frustrated. So I, I think that people who know me, none of that surprises them at all. You can ask my wife. She knows how much of a mess <laughs> I am. But uh, when you put your whole uh, self into your work and you know what needs to be done. You're willing to do whatever it takes, and and you believe in the mission. It gives the illusion that you're somehow great, and I'm not at all. I just try really hard, and and I and I give it my all, but I'll, I'm a mess, like everybody else. Well, Mike, I was going
1: to ask another question, but I've decided that the answer that you just gave to what might surprise the audience is the right way to end. And and I, I just want to say thank you. I mean. You are somebody that I can't express enough how grateful I am that you've taken the time to care about my own development, my own growth, my own success. And, you know, even though we're two very unique and different people, I think that there is a connection that is unwavering between the, the two of us and. I'm just grateful that we've had such an interesting and fun journey through our careers in multiple roles and multiple companies. And now that we've had this opportunity to connect on the show, I just want to say just a heartfelt thanks. And and I love you,
0: brother. Thanks, Billy. I love you, too. Billy, thank you for having me, lad.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.